save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome. This is Ellie Weiss and you're listening to Our Wild World. Today, my guest is Tobias Nyumba. And he's been on the program before, and he's been doing a Ph.D. study at Oxford and working within the Maasai Mara communities to uh, find new solutions, creative, out-of-the-box thinking, and new understandings or better understandings of what is behind the human-elephant-wildlife conflict within these communities. And he's been working at this for going on three years now, and... Um, we have a lot of shifting in thinking to get through. So, um, Tobias, well, welcome first. Hello. Hello. So, welcome Hello. back. It's nice to have you back. And for our listeners, I hope you would go back and listen to the previous episodes with Tobias because uh, they will give us some background of where we are today to seeing how things have shifted. And between the Western perspective and agenda in terms of Im implementing conservation solutions toward human-wildlife conflict, and what has shifted on the ground, and let's say the past not only 20 years, 10 years, but tremendously in the past, I'm going to say, five years. There's been a huge shift, the well-being and the understanding of the communities on the ground as a cascade of consequences and as a result of many, many years of conservation work. But here we are talking with Tobias, who's working with the communities in the Maasai Mara and uh, on the ground and getting an understanding from the perspective of the people themselves of what their needs have shifted. So, Tobias, give us a little background first. Thank you so much, Ellie. Uh, just a little bit of correction. I'm doing my PhD from uh, at the University of Cambridge. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> they, they are, we usually compete, so it, it, it goes hand in hand. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my study is actually focused on understanding uh, the impacts of human-elephant conflicts on human well-being and uh, their implications for the conservation and management of elephants. And uh, I'm working with communities in Kenya around Masai Mara National Reserve uh, within the uh, communal lands of Transmara. Uh, the purpose of my study is to try to unpack or rather provide a, a better way of looking at uh, the impacts of a conservation project on, a hum uh, on humans and especially their well-being, which has been constituted or, uh, you know, understood to be quite multifaceted. Uh, it combines a number of domains that people tend to really prioritize. And uh, this, to me, is a very important way of looking at conflict because it then takes away the focus on just a single aspect of uh, uh, humanity or human well-being that has been focused for quite some time in terms of what really uh, happens when people get involved in conflicting ways with wildlife. And this does not just end there because conservation as a whole generally have a lot of impacts on human well-being in, uh, in as far as poverty and uh, development is concerned. And so 
conflict is just a component or an example of a negative uh, outcome or a disservice from ecosystems that then ends up uh, impacting negatively on the aspects of human uh, existence. Uh, in order to do this then, uh, many people tend to use originally or existing measures of well-being, or what we call well-being indices or indexes, that then are taken and applied randomly on different study groups. So for instance, if I got one that's already been uh, prepared, say for example, the Human Development Index, then I go with it to the field and ask questions revolving around the indices that have been developed uh, initially, then we miss the point. Because the best way to measure this is to work with the people on the ground, to conceptualize and try to give you their understanding of well-being within their context. And so we therefore had to go, uh, go to the ground and work with the communities to develop a well-being index that was relevant for them, given that there were people who were experiencing conflict and they have lived with these elephants for quite some time and they were able to articulate really what aspects of their lives are impacted upon by uh, conflicts or by their interaction with elephants. So let's let's step back a minute. When we yes. talk about the development need indices, indexes, yes. where were these created? Who created them? Where was the data gathered for, for let's say, the development sustainable development goals the millennium development goals where was the information gathered from the research the background to create these goals was it more by committee in the hallowed halls of government and ngos or did it really work through surveys on the ground which i know you have done we can get into that and that was the first two years of a lot of the work you did and how were these indexes or indices built and created? Was the hierarchy of needs created by elsewhere or was it created by those living within the landscape and in conflict? Uh, Ellie, the indices that have been used to measure human well-being generally are externally created and uh, their creation has been done within the confines that really haven't been participatory in a way that... Uh, the people who have been involved in the creation have been either representatives of conservation organizations or agencies, government representatives, most of them very high-level kind of participation. And so there has always been that disconnect between what's happening at ground zero or at the very grassroots level and what is being considered as constituents of well-being. Uh, this is a very big challenge. And so most of the researchers or most of the recent accounts or calls for focusing on well-being have actually asked that if we want to measure the well-being of people on the ground, then it would be quite impractical to pick some of those externally developed well-being that have been done by people who are not living in those areas to try and use them to measure the well-being of the people we target on the ground. Or rather, three things have been considered here. Number one is the scale. Now, most of these well-being indices have been uh, aggregated, or rather they aggregate data at certain high-level scales. This could be at district level, national, national level, or even global level. So, for example, I talked about uh, the Human Development Index. Now, this is an index that is quite good. It's, it's quite participatorily uh, formulated, but it aggregates data at national level, which then implies that if you want to study at the very local level, you, are, you might not get the right interpretation of some of those uh, components of the of that index, but also 
some of them also are quite uh, subjective. So, for instance, uh, the, the International Wellbeing Index in Australia developed one that then tends to ask very subjective questions. They simply deal with what people think and what they feel about what they have, but it doesn't capture other aspects of their well-being, like the material and the relational aspects of well-being. But also, uh, in terms of structure, some of them are really not structured in a way that uh, appeals to the local. So the kind of wordings or the kind of uh, uh, you know, statements that they tend to use tend to be foreign in, in terms of uh, uh, conceptualization. So for instance, uh, if I was to ask people, people about education, uh, some indices might refer to that as knowledge or information. In other words, they all tend to measure the same thing. But if I ask somebody in my context what they think about the quality of education they, got, they get and what they think about the level of knowledge they have, it might mean two different things to them. But in reality, or academically or theoretically, it would mean the same thing. And so such kind of structure then means that whatever is externally structured and developed cannot be applied to a certain target group. And finally, issues of culture. Now, some of these studies are, are quite culture-specific. So, for instance, the CIFO, the International Center for Forestry Research, developed well-being indices for poverty studies in Indonesia. And what they did was to make it quite comprehensive. It captures all the three components of well-being, which is subjective, objective, and relational, what they call uh, the enabling environment. But the problem with this is that the items that are included have actually been defined for use by communities living around forests in Indonesia. In some other aspects, they have been developed for specific people. So for instance, uh, tourists, so we've got a tourism index, uh, we've got indices for people living with certain uh, ailments, uh, indices for children, or indices for different uh, elderly people in China. Now these are culturally specific indices. And so if I take them, or if somebody takes them and apply them to a certain, another community, you are going to get a completely warped up data and the result and the interpretation will be completely out of context because it doesn't reflect the reality on the ground. And that's why we then say, in order to actually reflect what is happening on the ground in as far as well-being is concerned, you really must define it participatorily with the people on the ground, get their construction and understanding of what constitutes their well-being. But then this can be, uh, you know, supported by existing uh, well-being indices that might be relevant. So, for example, you might get that community talk about education, but then they don't talk about knowledge. But in your literature, you find that knowledge is widely talked about. The interpretation will be the same, but the construction or the understanding will be different. And so you end up using education, but in essence, you still mean uh, knowledge. That kind of approach then works well. So. That's why we say the existing indices cannot really be applied uni uh, universally because they are designed for different purposes, they aggregate data at different levels, their construction or structure is completely different. And different definitions. When you say education and yes. the quality of a school, we tend to think the um, quality of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Exactly. And speaking a language as exactly. opposed to knowledge uh, which would be gained through living in a landscape, the knowledge of your area, um, the knowledge of the conflicts and what creates the conflicts versus the um, academic 
understanding exactly. of exactly. what knowledge is. So that's that's a really critical uh, understand change in understanding of how to ask the right question. A survey is only as good as the questions are asked, and the questions are only as good, as you've just made it very clear, as the understanding of how they're going to be interpreted in the context of a local community. So in in terms of what I call conservation colonialism, where NGOs um, have traditionally implemented our idea and these indices that you've been discussing created on a much more global scale, sort of taking a a bell curve of the world, and that usually relates to wealth in terms of uh, economic status of money versus or the wealth of land, cattle, and well-being. So you've you've mentioned well-being. Let's talk about how you've noticed the definition on the ground at the the very grassroot level within the community, how the definition of well-being has shifted over the past, let's say, five, ten years. Yes. Uh, well, the, the shift in understanding and definition of well-being, uh, you know, has really undergone a lot of ch- uh, changes, especially if you look at the original or rather the initial ways that was looked at, it was considered mainly through, you know, uh, economic metrics, so things like GDP. So, if for instance, you wanted to say that a community X is living well, they have a higher well-being. You'd look at how much income are they earning, and probably uh, how much crop are they getting. So, these were basically materi- uh, material, materialistic way of looking at well-being. But then, as time went by, then the shift then tried to consider aspects of people's general life. You know how they relate with each other, but also the landscape within which they conduct their activities. And so there's this kind of, you know, holistic definition of well-being or consideration of well-being where we say it's, the, it's, it's a state of being with others where human needs can be met and where they are able to act in a meaningful manner to meet their needs. And so this means that the relationship with people then counts. It's, it starts to count because you cannot live in isolation. But also that relationship should be able to enable you to meet your needs. And now the material aspect then still comes to play. And now you try to, sh- you start shifting from the two and say the way you, you should be able to act to meet those needs. So your personal feelings or your personal way of being able to conduct things with freedom. And so this, you know, we are talking about, do you feel that you have all that it takes and you have access to all that you need to be able to meet your goals, but also to be able to act meaningfully with the rest of the community? And so that means that the definition then recognizes the fact that uh, people do not live in isolation, but they live within the context of the community, including their natural environment, the ecosystems upon which they conduct their activities, and the natural resources upon which they depend. And so if they are able to handle all these things and balance them out, then they would be able to holistically say that their well-being is quite okay. But in instances where some of these are not met, then you, you start asking questions where you need to disaggregate and ask yourself, which ones do they prioritize and why do they prioritize them? Because not everybody in the community will tell you that if I get good education, I'm satisfied. Some will tell you that good education is the priority, but some will tell you that 
you know, being a leader, being a politician or a political leader is their priority. Some would talk about participation in governance. And so all these aspects are all at play within the same community by individuals within the society. This is, uh, this is a huge shift. And um, we're going to need to cut away to a break. Um, but this is a very big shift, which is really important for the Western world and the NGO community to understand in how to go about creating solutions to address human wildlife, human elephant conflict, specifically in this case. So stick with us. We're going to be right back. It's a very interesting conversation and critical knowledge for us, my listeners, and the Western world to understand. So we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and we're talking with uh, Tobias Nyumba. So uh, from the first section, we understood there has been a huge shift in the understanding of how we create information and what indices we need to be using toward creating development. I think you describe it as the three Ds so that we can understand what's at play on the ground. Well, uh, using uh, a new framework, the one I call the 3D, or the you know the, the multidimensional approach to human elephant conflict uh, research, it 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 kind of uh, brings very interesting perspectives because you realize that uh, 
people now tend to prioritize other things in relation to conservation, uh, such, as? Are, such as their health, uh-huh. uh, their education, you know, infrastructure and access to services, as well as the quality of these services. Right. And, and in, in fact, so their concern is a, in, in terms of access to these services, we have got things like uh, elephants, for instance, blocking their way to, to access education or to go to school. And uh, they start feeling that they are getting disenfranchised or not able to get the best education they want because either the schools have to close early or they have to get to school late and then they fail examination at the end of it and then they don't become competitive enough in future. You know, this is something that has never been given so much prominence because people thought, well, how are elephants and you going to school are re- uh, getting related? Right. Uh, but also in terms of health, I mean, when, when elephants destroy crops and so people don't get adequate diet or rather adequate nutrition from their farm produce, now this boils down to uh, food insecurity, which then means that health-wise, these people don't uh, live a healthy life. And uh, when they link this to the fact that they lost crops to elephants and so they find themselves malnourished or they are not able to uh, you know, live happily as people who are well-fed, then to me, I think that's something that really needs to be looked into because it means they attach their well-being or their healthy living to the fact that a conservation project or a conservation uh, subject in terms of uh, elephants is responsible for their poor state of health. Uh, in terms of access to these services, again, um, or rather quality of these services, sometimes they feel that uh, the funds that they could have used to access better quality services is actually used to supplement food that has been destroyed by elephants. And so their, their ability to get the best of what they could access in life then becomes compromised, and they start feeling that uh, they are not able to get the best for their future because of simply... Uh, you know, a conservation initiative is standing on their way. This so, is this is a huge shift from, let's say, completely. 20 years ago. Exactly. You know Calvin Cotter, and you know um, his work down there in the Mara. Yes, I do. And what he's been doing, uh-huh. and um, which is very similar to what you're talking about. As Calvin Cotter puts it, uh, the funding they do... Um, in the, in the compensation schemes. And the other one I was going to ask you about is Big Life. Nick yes. Brandt, Richard Bonham, and um, Tom Hill. Yes. So Tom Hill created the Predator uh, cons- Compensation Fund where the locals aren't necessarily having to buy into loving wildlife, yes. which is a really Western concept. We love animals. We don't want <laughs> anybody to kill the animals. And poachers should be killed and strung up. And what they just don't get is that's not the underlying conceptual thing. Exactly. It's not about loving animals. It's mm-hmm. about ecosystem services and mm-hmm. access to benefits that are a result of globalization. Exactly. So um, who was it who said it? I think it was Calvin Cotter. It's 30, 50 years ago, or when colonialism was in place, um, the local people, the tribe, did not adopt the Western lifestyle. They didn't adopt the clothing, they didn't adopt the diet, they didn't adopt the financial, they didn't adopt the education, and they did not adopt the access to healthcare and ecosystem service benefits. Now they do. As of like 30 years ago, 
they have adopted the Western lifestyle, which costs money. So it's not so much about engaging African communities to like wildlife any better, because that's not the issue. The issue is they want access to what the West Western lifestyle has to offer. Health insurance, yes. security from being eaten on their way to doing their daily activities, exactly. food security, mm-hmm. and um, have their ecosystem function for them yes. as well as the wildlife. And, and I think uh, that, that's a very interesting observation. And, uh, you know, when, when I looked at the well-being uh, issues on the ground in terms of definition of what constitutes well-being for them, uh, you know, the way they articulate this or the way they tend to define some of these components tell you that uh, they are more informed now and they are able to differentiate what really means good life for them and how they can obtain that from the natural ecosystem as opposed to, you know, uh, what initially was assumed that if people are sponsored through education or some hospitals are constructed, then people should be happy and appreciate conservation. And and this, to me, is a very clear way, or rather a very clear reason why perhaps human-wildlife conflict has persisted for far too long. Because we as practitioners, we tend to prioritize things that we think matter to them and invest in that, for instance, constructing fences, or, you know, creating barriers and digging trenches in the hope that people are going to, you know, start being happy and harvesting their crops. But if, if you look, for example, at what we experienced in Laikipia, where the fence is very good, it's supposed to work, but it's not working because it's being compromised by the same people we thought were supposed to be happier once the fence was constructed. Compromised, now compromised how? Uh, well, of course, they, they cut through the wires to access resources on the other side of the fence. Okay. Some of them simply vandalize the wires for other activities. So, like, they cut the wires and sell them elsewhere to get money. Uh, But the key thing was that the fences acted not only as a barrier to elephants, but also as a barrier to people to access resources on the other side, which was the main issue, actually. And that was, you know, that was a study that was done, I'm going to say, 30 years ago, when I think it was a WWF study or some some NGO that... um, conflict from elephants at the waterhole. So um, they built women and elephants. So they built a fence on the wrong side of the waterhole. Yes. So the women still had to go through the fence and deal with elephants at the waterhole. Uh-huh. So the simple thing to have, d- have done was to put the fence like across the waterhole. <laughs> sort of so like they did up in the NFT, leave yeah. area for wildlife and cows, yeah. but provide a security for the women to go use the water. Uh-huh. That's 30 years old. And here we are, 30 years later, and we're rediscovering <laughs> the same thing. And exactly. it feels like to me, in the meanwhile, all this, I'm going to use the word conservation colonialism, yeah. has still been trying to tell Africans how to live, how to use their resources, where to use their resources, and leave wildlife alone. It's always been the same thing. Wildlife has always been more important to NGOs because that's That's how they raise money Uh than the people. So you and I met how many years ago at um, Space for Giants? So the problem hasn't changed. The Mm -hmm. observations have been 
more deeply understood mm-hmm. and the solutions are more creative. Well-being is really important. Their idea of well-being, not our idea of what gives them well-being. That point. That's and the point. It's a huge point, and it's always been the point. And yeah. it's always the way Wild Eyes looked at things. What mm-hmm. is it the people need? Not what I want to give them. Yes. Or what, you know, not what I want to see happen. What do they want to see happen? So here mm-hmm. we are, 20 some odd, 30 some odd years later, or 100 years later, depending on how long you want to take this conservation colonialism back um, to actually working with communities. I mean, there was the whole community-based conservation, quote-unquote, discussion. But once again, in that, we were still telling the communities what they needed. Exactly. Now the communities, as you just said, are more informed. They have much better access, cell phones, (laughs) markets, economies they understand it and that's a shift that's happened over the last 20 years from the maasai never sending a kid to school never sending a girl to school and maybe only the boy would go to school but they but taking care of the um manata came first yes now that's shifted it's shifted completely it's shifted completely because they have adopted the western lifestyle because they see their own benefit out of it, not exactly. the benefit we want them to see, if I've understood you correctly. That is the point. Yeah, now it's, it is them who now see that uh, this is the right way to live and this is what we think can give us more benefit than the traditional way of life. Okay, two more, impor- two more critical things you just said. Traditional yes. way of life uh-huh. and the right way to live. Traditional <laughs> way of life is a cultural thing. Exactly. Um, that's more objective. We're using the words, the right way to live is subjective. Exactly. So what created that shift to be saying the right way to live? Uh, well, I think this all came from, again, external construction of what people need. Uh, because for some reason, we created certain metrics to say that uh, for you to live the right way, you need to meet the following criteria. And all these, again, were external, uh, externally conceived. But then if you look at it, the, the main difference with the traditional way of life is simply telling people that, you know, this is how you've lived for centuries in your landscape within that context. And uh, you've been able to survive. You've been able to overcome all the natural shocks. And you've been able to sustain your livelihoods, despite things like conflicts arising every now and then. And so uh, because of this, what we want to call, for instance, civilization, which is externally conceived, we've tried to create certain measurements to try and say that those who live below certain benchmarks are current, are not living very well. And, and to me, I think that's a very interesting observation in the sense that uh, when I ask the masses what is their understanding of being wealthy or what does being wealthy mean to them, my my thinking was straight away that I thought they would say having so many cattle, having like, you know, 300 herds of cattle that will define being wealthy. But then when, when we defined that with them in the focus groups, having cattle didn't even feature so much. What featured prominently was being well-educated, having a good house, and uh, as, of course, owning things like a motorbike or, a, or a, uh, a vehicle or a bicycle. And then I asked them, how about having a lot of, a lot of cattle? And they say, 
where will you take them? So that to me was like, there's a lot of awareness as to having a lot of, a lot of cattle would mean you spend more to sustain them as opposed to having materials that, are, that can be, you know, stored, for instance, in a house, things like a motorbike, things like a bicycle. But also it showed to me that uh, there's more, they are more in touch with what is happening externally because in other communities or neighboring communities, they have motorbikes as a show of wealth, owning vehicles as a show of wealth, having a modern house or a more, you know, semi-permanent housing as a show of pro uh, progress. And so they also tend to think that they need to move towards this kind of uh, created metrics of progress. And as much as they still want to retain their traditional way of life, especially in certain aspects of their well-being, so things like food, they will still want to retain their you know, uh, feeding habits. But things that make them can come into contact with the rest of the world tend to be transformed or tend to change according to the uh, prevailing scenarios. And so... I, th I think that then makes a very big case for them also trying to meet the, the standards that have been set externally, but still struggle to retain their original identity as traditional Maasai's. Okay, so why don't we stop here for a minute, and we're going to cut away to a break, and we're going to pick up further into what has shifted that you have found over these past three years and your, your study and the solutions, the creative solutions you've come up with in terms of traditional life versus taking on a more contemporary lifestyle. So stick with us. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Tobias Nyumba, and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back, uh, Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, with my guest Tobias Numba. And so far through the program, we've gotten a much clearer understanding of the questions that have in the past defined the goals and the solutions that we've been looking for. And as Tobias has been telling us, a lot of it has been external in terms of not only conceptual understanding and how it is interpreted within the context of the local community versus the hallowed halls of uh, development goals versus um, what has shifted. And a lot has shifted. And a big part of that is the taking on an adoption of Western civilization, which includes health, food security, and education, but in a different definition than we typically defined before, which would be how we would implement to reach certain goals. So, Tobias, help us understand, in terms of these last five years, it really has been a major shift, and as much as things have changed, they're still really the same. What seems to have shifted is the awareness knowledge level of the local communities to articulate their hierarchy of needs to be able to create more out-of-the-box out thinking solutions in terms of addressing human-elephant conflict. So help us understand what you noticed on the ground of, of this shift. When did you start seeing that the local communities had a more global outlook versus the living in isolation and, as we sort of tend to think, a romantic, uh, romanticized version of the Maasai standing there with his cattle? Yes, uh, the Maasai actually have traditionally been considered people who are uncivilized, people who have been in the, in the, in the darkness for quite some time. Uh, but I think over the years, things have really changed. And uh, this is quite manifest over the time that I was out in the field. I was able to observe a lot of things that we tend to do as civilized communities, so to speak, have been adopted. So, for example, in terms of, uh, in terms of education, yeah, uh, traditional Maasai communities never really emphasized education as one of the priorities in their lives. Uh, but as was evident during my focus group discussions and the interviews, Education and especially formal education, taking children to school, both girls and boys, was a real priority. So most of the parents were digging deep into their pockets to pay for school fees. They were going attending school meetings or parents' meetings and participating in all aspects of education of their children. This time around, you could see that you ask them questions about how satisfied they are with the quality of education their kids, children are getting. You could see clear concern about quality, and not just quality in terms of, you know, the time spent in school, but also in terms of uh, how many children are passing exams and why are they not passing if there are. And this could be clearly linked to conservation challenges that I mentioned initially in terms of the parents complaining that elephants, for instance, are blocking their kids from getting to school in time. 
are forcing their children to get out of school. And so, you know, that kind of emphasis on education is quite evident. Number two is the, the understanding of wealth. Once again, traditionally, the Maasais were thought to be, you know, pastoralists and they attached all their livelihoods and their wealth understanding to cattle and livestock. Now, this seems to have shifted a lot. Now, this wealthy person does not necessarily have to have lots of cattle, but this person must have a quality house, must have certain uh, material things like, you know, a motorbike, some vehicles were mentioned, and bicycles. Now, these are things that were never there, and this show that they have actually embraced aspects of tra uh, traveling outside their community and interacting with the rest of the society, which means that they have been able to come into contact with what others might, might consider the real civilization. So, uh, uh, let me interject here. So this is a shift from um, that romanticized version of cattle mean everything. Exactly. And that's not to say cattle mean less now. They still mean as much, but they are not the basis of yes. definition of wealth. That definition of wealth has now taken on currency, financial income. Exactly. And, and I think at this stage I need to mention, because when I did the focus groups, again, I had a, I had a kind of stratified them in terms of a, the younger generation, the women and the men separately. And a, apart from men, of course, men still attached a bit of a importance to cattle, but the women really emphasized education as the priority and the younger generation emphasized education and employment. And so this tells you that the shift is, is, is actually cropping in and the elderly men are phasing out with the traditional notions of wealth. And then the younger generation is now coming in, attaching wealth to financial powers. And they believe that if you're employed and educated, then you are wealthier than that traditional Maasai who is illiterate and having so many heads of cattle. Now, that was a very interesting observation on the ground as well. This brings a question to mind. Um, mm. And, and then we'll get back into some of the solutions that you've actually created. But this is an interesting philosophical point in terms of shifting cultures. We always talk about, you know, it's a cultural tradition. Uh, I'll use the, the dolphins at Taji Cove for an example, all right, and the slaughter. And the world is trying to stop the slaughter of dolphins. And uh, the people in Taji say, it's our tradition, it's our culture. But traditions and cultures change. Over time. And you've just done an incredible job of helping us understand how, how it shifts in terms of a globalized modern world, a shift toward education. When I first started working in Kenya, uh, you know, the Maasai didn't send their kids to school, certainly not girls. Exactly. And now we're talking about the younger generations who over the past 20 years are being educated their hierarchy of needs have changed, their quest for knowledge and what they want to know has changed. And, um, and it, as you just said, it's to take a place on the larger stage. So what does this mean philosophically, do you think, I'm asking for an opinion, in terms of the Maasai culture in the future? Once the elder generation, we are at a paradigm shift of... Um, global population, uh, development needs, hierarchy needs. It's shifted from cattle to cash to employment to um, material needs. So what does this mean, do you think, and how will this blend? Will we still see Maasai and their cattle? And it also points to that a lot of the work over the past 
20, 50 years in building schools, NGOs building schools, and Kenya's move to make uh, uh, education free, yeah, uh, attendance to school yeah. free for mm-hmm. early learning, not later higher education. But um, what do you think this is going to do to the Maasai of the future? The, the one, the millennial, the millennial Maasai, who are they? Yeah. Well, well, I think uh, the Maasai, as, as, as an ethnic community, will still remain. But the Maasai, as the romanticized shuka wearing and jumping with, the, you know, this tourist, uh, the face of tourism perhaps is going to fade off uh, because of so many reasons. And one of them, like I've said, is education. Uh, many of them who have gone to school and have educated themselves tend to feel that uh, that old Maasai who stands under a cashier tree with a spear on the ground and bended knees is... Is, is, is some kind of a, 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 an image of somebody who is quite illiterate and unexposed. And so there's no artifact. Exactly. Some kind of a, uh, you know, an, an item for sale or for display, things like that. Uh, but also, uh, there has been a lot of intermarriages amongst the Maasai and the neighboring ex- external tribes. And these people come in with different ways of life. So when you talk about conservation and human wildlife solution conflict solutions to the local Maasai myriad communities how do they define conservation to the local Maasai conservation simply means protecting elephants they attach conservation to elephants and uh, you know having the Kenya Wildlife Service which is a government authority being seen around to be protecting those animals to me this is a big shift as well because initially when you talk to anybody in Kenya, they said pastoralism and conservation is compatible. If you want conservation to succeed, allow people living in the pastoral and rangelands to coexist with wildlife. But because of the changes we've mentioned now, the millennials and uh, all these current inter- interactions, the thinking has shifted, the interest has shifted, but also there's more awareness. These people have come to realize that uh, they bear lots of losses, but the benefits go elsewhere, uh, what we call the elite capture. So, for instance, the Manyatas, they get a lot of revenue from tourism, but then how much of this goes down to the local man or local Maasai whose son or daughter was killed by an elephant three, di- three days ago? Uh, you mentioned Mara Elephant pro- uh, pro- uh, Project, for instance. Yeah? Uh, if, if you look at the Mara Conservancy, which is the immediate neighbor of Transmara community I was working with, they have a very clear manifesto that 19% of their revenue goes towards community support programs. And one of these is paying for educational costs for individuals within, the, within a certain distance from the boundary of the park. Now, the bone of contention then is in terms of the distribution of this wealth. It is not equitably distributed, or if it is, then the process of the distribution seems to be quite obscured. And so what I got when I discussed with people, I had a, a chance to talk to the chairman of that trust, and uh, he had a completely different opinion because his statement was that, I am the chairman of this trust that is tasked to oversee the distribution of this money to schools, construction of re- uh, infrastructure in schools, but nobody tells me how much money is brought in. I'm only given money to use, but I don't know it is 19% of what? Huh. So that lack of transparency then means that uh, when this person goes to the ground and tells people that, oh, you know, this is the amount I've been given, I don't know how much they have there, 
then the mistrust continues to build. And at the end of the day, those social interactions that support conservation tends to wane. And so people might then relate their conflicting relationships in the society to the existence of a conservation project, which is the, uh, the, the, the Mara Conservancy or the Mara Triangle. These are things that, you know, they are so much hidden, but in a way, they affect general feelings of individuals at households and then gets manifested at community level. And so conservation to them, therefore, means that uh, we are supposed to get, but unfortunately, we are not getting because someone is standing between us and the benefits. So there's still a very big gap. So as the hierarchy of needs have changed to adopt a more Western globalized lifestyle, get a job, urbanize, Mm -hmm people leaving the manana, the manana changing, um, there's still this gap that has always been there of how does the money from conservation trickle down to the people being affected by the landscape. Exactly, exactly. That has been a a bond of contention. I think it happens and they, they haven't got a formula to address it, to be honest, because it's all political. It's something that we just can't wade into easily and come up with a solution. So, um, in in the education that's happening yes. in on the local level, not the college PhD level, is yes. conservation being taught, and that it's not just about elephants. Mm, well, the kind of conservation that I've seen being taught, for instance, is basically revolving around uh, you know forest or habitat restoration. Sorry, and this has been spearheaded by WWF. Uh, where they work with the communities to plant more trees, but also to conduct seminars with the communities to teach them about the significance of forest, uh, you know, protection or forest conservation. But it's still but a very then, big gap. It's it, exactly. it sounds like it's not connecting the education. Yes, we need our forests to your life right here. Exactly. Wow. And, and even where the infrastructure has been construct, constructed, yeah. Uh, yeah. When I talk to the communities about, you know, support programs they receive from either conservancies or from the uh, government or any other persons, they were very quick to state and they were very clear in their mind as to where they get their support, which is basically from individual tourists and well-wishers. And they were able to, to pinpoint which schools have been supported by individuals, what has been built or what has been constructed and how many kids uh, have been, have been supported in terms of paying school fees. But you ask them, what has the conservancy done as a whole? They say, well, we are not so sure, but we hear that they support ABCD, but we haven't seen. Now, that disconnect between uh, who supports what, to me, I think it's a clear indication of lack of transparency, because as far as I'm concerned, I know the conservancy does something. They help the community in one way or the other, and they link their support to the conservation or tourism revenues that they get from the park. The question is, why is the community not aware that Project X that is being supported in the community is actually linked to the revenue accrued from tourism activities within the park? Whereas they can say, uh, Madam Elways visited last week, she visited School X, and she donated a generator for pupils to study at night. They know that and they can say even how much money was spent to buy that generator. Because Madam Ellie came and was quite open and transparent with them as to what she was willing to support. So that kind of lack of transparency on either side is perhaps what is causing that, uh, you know, breakdown in terms of linking what they are getting to the existence of elephants or existing of a conservation project in the area. 
and maybe it's not so much a lack of transparency as it is a lack of understanding the connection yes to conservation with the big C to everyday lifestyle so mm-hmm. in some ways and I use the term conservation colonialism is alive and well and it's still disconnected from the real world in many ways that is absolutely true wow very interesting <laughs> so unfortunately we're running out of time so what we've just learned here today is the Maasai or any other tribal community anywhere on earth that lived a traditional lifestyle it has shifted and now just like here in the west we need to find ways to reconnect with nature and Africa has its outstanding iconic indigenous endemic species elephant rhino lion and what you've said is what I'm hearing is there's a shift away from the Maasai even of an appreciation of those natural resources so a lot of your work is about once again reconnecting the circle and back to an appreciation of their natural resources not just like the rest of the world how can we use them to benefit us financially but for the ecosystem services they provide for their continued existence on planet earth even if they want to live in an urban area and get a job and wear a suit exactly so um we're uh we've got like maybe a minute here so your next field study is uh going to be what Uh, my next field study is basically going to follow up on some of the monitoring aspects that has been going on, how much of the elephant habitat has been lost, uh, where exactly is conflict now occurring, or what is the major shift of conflict from which point to which point, or which parts of the landscape to where, but also to see uh, what changes have occurred in terms of people's perception, perceptions from the last time I left. Uh, because over the last Three or four months I've had instances where elephants have actually trampled a few people or killed a few people. And these are the things that tend to become so much publicized and they have lasting impact on people's feelings. Uh, I've also had, and some of them have been students or other pupils that have been killed while going to school. And these are the issues that I mentioned really impact on their well-being as education is one of the well-being components. And so if the kids can be attacked while going to school, then how then does that impact on their perception and appreciation for conservation? Then that really is one of the things that I need to go back and follow up on. How are those issues now uh, presenting on the ground after probably one year of absence well, from this the ground? Is, this has been fascinating because it's sort of a, a brief look into the good, the bad, and the ugly of exactly. what's happened over the past generations. So as much as the world has changed for the Western world, the world has changed on the, at the grassroots level within the traditional culture of the Maasai. So exactly. once again, we're trying to reconnect to nature. We do want to have elephants, understanding the conflict they do create, and I guess maybe actually it is, is, it is coming back to loving elephants because they are. And that's going to be an interesting uh, conundrum to understand from your next field study. So unfortunately, we're out of time today. Um, Tobias, thank you so much. This has been highly educational.
You're welcome, Ellie, and thank you so much for listening to me. Oh, absolutely. So um, we're going to follow up because we could go on for quite a while. There's a lot to talk about here. Uh, Let me know uh, when you get back to the field because we're going to be looking for some answers to the the questions you're asking. So meanwhile, thank you for listening. This is Ellie Weiss, my guest, Tobias Nyumba, and you're listening to Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.